Welcome to the History Guy Podcast, a podcast dedicated to stories of lesser-known historical events told by Lance Geiger, also known as the History Guy on YouTube. I'm Josh, your host, a writer for the channel and eldest son of the History Guy. We tell all kinds of stories about history, from the modern era to the ancient past, so you never know what we're going to talk about next. One thing you can be sure of, it is history that deserves to be remembered. This episode of Forgotten History is brought to you by Magellan TV a new kind of streaming service that aims to bring you the best documentaries from around the world. On today's episode, the History Guy talks about two stories of history lost. First, the saga of the 1890 census, a marvel of advanced data collecting at the time that was lost and almost completely destroyed in a series of events decades later. Then the History Guy will talk about the fire at the National Personnel Records Center, which destroyed millions of military records. Without further ado, let me introduce the History Guy. In January 1921, hundreds of people watched as the fire department fought a fire in the U.S. Commerce Building in Washington, D.C. Unable to reach the source of the smoke, the fire department eventually just chopped holes in the floor and pumped down thousands of gallons of water in hope of quenching the blaze. It took years to fully understand the cost of that fire because it, it wasn't just damage to part of a federal building. It was the loss of part of American history. The 1890 U.S. Census counted 63 million people living in the United States, but records for only some 6,000 of those survive today. The story of how only 0.0001% of the 1890 U.S. Census remains is a story of mismanagement that resulted in literally forgetting our history and led to the creation of the United States National Archives to protect our government records. It is history that deserves to be remembered. The American Constitution requires the taking of a decennial, meaning once every 10 year, census, the first in 1790, with the results being used to determine representation in the House of Representatives. Before the Census Bureau was created in 1902, the census was handled by the Department of the Interior, and over the 19th century was refined as the American population exploded and the nation grew across the continent. The 1890 census was different from prior censuses in a few ways. The first was that it was the first census where copies of the schedules, the large sheets on which the information was recorded, were not required to be kept by local county clerk offices, which meant that the originals sent to Washington were the only copies. The census had also expanded to track more information than earlier censuses about race, home ownership, and more. The 1890 census also marked the end of the American frontier. The final report concluded that, at present, the unsettled area has been so broken into by isolated bodies of settlement that there can hardly be said to be a frontier line. Most significantly, the 1890 census was the first census to have information tabulated by machine. Herman Hallreth, at age 19, had helped compile the 1880 census and saw the need for a machine that would help the census workers count the quickly multiplying millions of people living in the United States. During the 1880s, Hallreth developed tabulating machines specifically designed to assist with decreasing the amount of time it took to compile the census, from the eight years it took to process the 1880 census to a hopeful six years for 1890. The machines used punch cards to simplify counting, an innovation that would last into the computing age. Later, Hollerith's company would be one of the companies that merged to form IBM. Robert Porter, superintendent of the census, was awed by the modern marvel. 
for the first time in the history of the world, the count of the population of a great nation has been made with the help of electricity, he said. The increases in speed and efficiency were enormous. The first rough count of the U.S. population was completed in only six weeks. The official count was released in December, 62,622,250. The tabulating machines ultimately would save more than two years in processing time and $5 million for the U.S. government. Not to mention that it was now possible to draw any combination of numbered facts from the data, the most complicated at no more expense than the simpler ones allowing the data to be much better used and explained in reports. One expert statistician reported that the machines work as unerringly as the mills of the gods, but beats them hollow as to speed. The newfound speed didn't save the census from controversy, however. Most of the enumerators, the uh, census employees in charge of the tabulation, had earned their positions through political patronage, and there was no examination required to qualify. Carl Schurz, former Secretary of the Interior during the Rutherford Hayes administration, said of them that they cannot spell and they cannot do arithmetic. After the census was completed, accusations of fraud and undercounting were rampant. New York, the most populous state in the census, was accused of bolstering numbers for their own gain. An intense business competition between St. Paul and Minneapolis, Minnesota would lead to 19 convictions over businessmen adding 1,100 false names to the schedules. In fact, the U.S. public was in an uproar, too. Before the census was completed, the nation had worked itself into a froth of excitement. The New York Times reported, Our males of arms-bearing age will make every civilized nation a pygmy relation, and our wealth will have grown by millions to more millions than purse-proud Britain can boast. Given the enormous growth from 1790 to 1860, and putting aside the civil war that had interrupted the country's growth, the country expected to be impressed. But 63 million was not the number the public wanted. One writer noted that the count sent into spasms of indignation a great many people who had made up their minds that the dignity of the republic could only be supported on a total of 75 million. It took another two years for all the data to be properly tabulated and collected, but then there was another problem. Where to put it all? The government didn't have a specific space to store all this data. There was no national archive, no group of people who were responsible for preserving this collected data for posterity. Each agency was responsible for its own records, and in the 19th century, many were lost or destroyed. Before all of the general statistic volumes for 1890 had even been published, portions of special schedules for the disabled, mortality schedules, and more were damaged by a fire destroyed by the Interior Department. The general population schedules appeared to be unharmed, however, as in 1903 a census clerk reported that they were in fairly good condition. Demands for the government to protect and store government files had been growing for decades. In 1884, the founding of the American Historical Association provided a serious entity to lobby for better document protection. During the 1800s, even the most important documents to the Republic were often rolled up and moved, and both the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution were kept in wooden cabinets at the Department of State. In 1895, J. Franklin Jameson, a professor at Brown University, submitted a plan for the collection and publication of government materials to the AHA. And in 1898, the association sent Congress a plan for a Hall of Records. But no progress was made towards its establishment for several decades. The fateful event that would lead to the establishment of the National Archives occurred on January 10, 1921. Many census records were stored in a fireproof and waterproof vault in the basement of the Commerce Building. But the original schedules for the 1890 census were stored on wooden shelving in an unlocked storage room outside of the vault. 
At about 5 o'clock on January 10th, a Commerce Building watchman reported smoke, though he could find a fire. The desk watchman called the fire department as another watchman fled the basement, which was full of smoke. The fire department poured water into the building for the next five hours while a crowd gathered to watch. They cut holes into the concrete floor of the first floor and from there flooded the basement, getting the fire under control by 9.45, though they continued to drench hot spots until 10.30. Though the damage to records was obvious and serious, there was no disaster plan in place, and except for a few watchmen, everybody then went home. Census clerks assessed the damage with dismay the next morning. A crack in a glass window of the vault meant some of the protected schedules were damaged, but most serious was damage to the 1890 census, which were, according to one witness, first in the path of the firemen. Sam Rogers, the census director, reported that 25% of the schedules were destroyed, while 50% of the rest were damaged by water, smoke, and fire. Later estimates would put the amount destroyed at 15 to 25%. The Bureau thought it would be possible to salvage many of the records if a huge effort was made to copy them, but a census clerk reported morosely that they were almost certain to be ruined. There is no way to restore the legibility of a water-soaked volume. The News Journal of Wilmington, Delaware reported that the loss was probably the worst of its kind in the government's history. Pieces of the 1830, 40, 80, 1900, and 1910 census were also damaged. The damage was exacerbated when, four days later, the census clerks were still being denied access to the schedules while the insurance company examined the damage. Meanwhile, speculation about how the fire started was roiling the country. Many suspected that despite a no-smoking rule in the building, a discarded cigarette was to blame. A woman in Ohio was convinced that the fire had been started to destroy her family's records and therefore rob them of their property. Others said that it must have started in the wood shop or the boiler room. Some even suggested spontaneous combustion. Investigators did later determine where the fire had begun, but ultimately neither the census director nor anyone else found a definitive cause for the blaze. The public was furious. The Washington Post pointed out that the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence remained at risk at the State Department. Calls for the National Archives multiplied from professionals, organizations, and members of the government. When rumors began flying that the Interior Department planned to destroy the damaged census, Petitions flooded in to demand the records be salvaged, including from the National Genealogical Society and the Daughters of the American Revolution. The government insisted they had no plans to destroy the records, and Herbert Hoover, at the time Secretary of Commerce, wrote that the actual cost of providing a watchman and extra fire service to protect records probably amounts to more, if we take the government as a whole, than it would cost to put up a proper fireproof archive building. In May of 1921, the records were returned to the Commerce Building, as no appropriations had been made. It wasn't until 1926 that Congress appropriated funds to build the National Archives building, which would eventually cost more than $177 million in today's dollars. The building, set halfway between the Capitol and the White House and taking up two blocks, had its cornerstone laid on February 20, 1933. It wasn't until the next year that President Franklin Roosevelt approved the creation of an agency to staff the building on June 19, 1934. Unfortunately, the 1890 census wouldn't survive to see it. In December of 1932, the chief clerk of the Census Bureau sent a list of items to the Librarian of Congress. If they were not of historical interest, the items were up for destruction. Item 22 on the list was the 1890 census. And without comment, the Librarian sent it on to Congress, where on February 21st, one day after the cornerstone for the building meant to protect it was laid, the census was authorized for destruction.
It's not completely clear when the final schedules from the 1890 census were destroyed or why there was no objection given the national outcry in 1921, but by differing accounts, the schedules, many of which presumably were undamaged, were destroyed in 1934 or 1935. And since then, only a handful of schedules that were in other locations have been identified, preserving the record for only some 6,000 people. The loss of the 1890 census was an irretrievable, devastating loss for people who study things like demographics and genealogy. We preserve our federal records like our census schedules because that's a vital part of preserving our nation's history. Our census schedules are a snapshot of who we were and how we lived in that time, and their loss doesn't just damage our understanding of our national history, but our ability to research and find our personal connection to that history. And the loss of the 1890 census reminds us of how important it is that we preserve and protect our own archive of the past. Those things like photo albums and letters and family stories that are our connection to our history. Now's the part of the episode where we get to chat with the history guy about what we just heard, what we're going to hear, and some behind-the-scenes stuff that you only get on the podcast. Uh, the loss of the 1890 census was dramatic and ordinary in turns, but I, I think inarguably it was a tragedy, almost in a classic sense. But from a historical standpoint, what do you think we lost when these records were destroyed? Yeah, we mentioned in the episode, we essentially says that that is losing history. Anybody who does, say, genealogical research, I mean, they, they feel the loss of the 1890 census. And you get so many people who notice that right there, that is the point where, you know, their, their, you know, their records stop. Uh, in a way, though, I mean, we just lost some innocence there. And that's the thing that we also kind of gained from it is that when really when you had that fire, then they realized things like the Declaration of Independence and, you know, originally signed documents or the, were, were, were being kept in just as unsafe a condition. Yeah. Uh, and that we didn't have a National Archive building. And that's what it took to create a National Archive building. So so we lost some innocence there. We certainly lost a lot of family records that could be very important to people who are trying to trace their history. Uh, but we also uh, we learned a lesson that helped us to preserve that more for the future. So if you're if you're one of those who say who oh who cares it's you know it's a hundred ten year old census or hundred thirty year old <laughs> census now you're saying you really don't appreciate history why you know why why learn history because uh, because you know who cares if we lose records historical records that tell us a lot about who we are I mean whenever you do that it's a, it's a critical loss for some people it is literally the loss of their heritage they are not yeah. able to trace back their family history because of that block that comes from the 1890 census it's, it can be very so difficult and that's yeah, that's it's terrible I, I I actually gave a presentation on this to some to a genealogical society. Um, I wrote this script, but the the it was interesting looking at the uh, talk, talking to them because it's true that if without the eighteen ninety census and we have just a tiny fraction of them that survived, that means that you could have someone born in eighteen eighty one missed by the eighteen eighty census, be out of the household by the nineteen hundred census, and that I mean that means you can't you might not be able to make those connections because otherwise one of the things that the census are so good at doing is telling you who their parents were because it was who they were living with, which every ten years almost certainly in one of the censuses they're going to be living with their parents at least one, mm -hmm. uh, but if you lose the eighteen ninety census that means you don't have that, and so for a lot a 20 of twenty year gap for yeah, yeah for a lot of the only way you know 
when grandpa died, as he was on one census, he's not on another census. A 20-year gap is huge. You could have entire relatives. That, that was the only census they would have. You'd be 20 years old uh, and born right after the census and die right before a census. And because that census is lost in the middle, your, you know, your whole record is lost. Uh, yeah. And that's all. I mean, that's all, it's, uh, those are, uh, it's an amazing piece of record keeping, the U.S. Census. There was a reason that uh, Congress, you know, from the very start uh, in the Constitution said that we have to take a census, a decennial census. Uh, and so, yeah, it is, it's, it's a loss. It was recognized as a loss at the time. Yeah. Uh, but just at the time, I don't think in the way that people do now. I mean, before records were digitized and et cetera now. I mean, I, I, if, yeah. I mean, if you think about, you know, why is it critical? I mean, think if we lost all the censuses, you know, what, what would we know? And I mean, that's, that's, you know, that's zombie apocalypse. Yeah. That is that is having your history erased. And I do think uh, I, I mentioned because I looked into kind of other pieces of lots of other pieces of censuses have been uh, lost or destroyed or damaged. Nothing, nothing on the scale of the 1890 census, except maybe the 1791. Uh, really, what we learned from the 1790 census was uh, how to do a census. And we might not have mm -hmm. done the 1791 very well. But for instance, we don't have the census record for George Washington in 1790. <laughs> yeah, and that, that's well. I mean, if you think of all the records that were lost, say in the Second World War in Europe, when things yeah. were destroyed, and you think of what families lost there in terms of their understanding, some of them still, you know, seeking return of property, but also, you know, yeah. and that's huge. I mean, in the in the episode on firefighters, we noted that we don't really know who filed the original patent for a fire hydrant because the patent office burned down <laughs> with the patent <laughs> records. Yeah, you know, that's 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 you know that there's an irony there, but I mean, it's it's meaningful. This stuff yeah. is how we tell history, how we know who we are and something is large and the thing is this census was particularly effective because we had this new mechanical counting mechanism and so this should be a more robust understanding of our national population than we had ever previous and yet this census is, is lost and, and yeah. we, you know, we, you know, 20, 20 years gone. So it's by any means, it's a tragedy. It's a tragedy and loss of history. It was a tragedy to the nation in the same way that, I mean, it's, uh, it's not just in what you lost, but in terms of the, you know, the, the anguish of that, whenever you have, you know, a fire that comes and takes something from you, it's yeah. like that grievance, grieving for that. Uh, and, and it also just, it just told us, I mean, how irresponsible we had been not having an archives building. Uh, but I mean, we've learned that in other. I mean, we did an episode on the on a vault fire that destroyed uh, uh, hundreds of hours of newsreel clips, uh, and the, I mean, it, those are that's all that's history, and that's yeah. all uh, that's all stuff that now. Gosh, you know, if we had that, we would know more. And so it's it's tragic that we lost it. Who the knows farther back you go in history, the spottier it gets. And you know, I wish the Romans had a good census, and, and it's it's a loss that will continue to be felt for. I mean, yeah. a thousand years from now, assuming people are still around, we still will be missing things because we don't have that census from that yeah year. there will be stuff there will be stuff we don't know and it's mm -hmm. i mean on a personal level you know that the, there's so much history uh, in mm -hmm. just the way the people lived their their lives where they mm -hmm. were what they were because you know everyone who was alive in 1890 was doing something now we don't know even where they were probably and we made this huge national effort to count them and now yeah. now we don't know and it does go back to you know personally too how many of you have old photographs that have been handed down in photo albums and no one wrote the names and you don't know who that is uh, and then that person you know that's history that deserves to be remembered and there that's those are people history forgets yeah, uh, and so it's, it's it tells you why it's important to to record those uh, because even you know things that your kids should know. Certainly, yeah. your grandparents do, and it's it's a tragedy to lose. That. I mean, this is a channel about forgotten history, uh, and we really respect how important it is to 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 try to remember history that it deserves to be remembered. And so this is this is a, a stab in the heart of the yeah. history guy when when you lose something like this. 
to some extent, I think we take it a little bit for granted because of how much access we do have to records like this now. Uh, so much of it has been digitized. You can go to, you know, Wikipedia and they'll cite these sources. But even, you know, 40 years ago, it would have been much more difficult because somebody would have had to find that information mm -hmm. uh, to and they uh, they were digging through a binder someplace. And mm -hmm. many of those files probably were not stored in ways that would have saved them if something caught on fire nearby. It's I mean, we do research all the time. It's amazing how much in the National Archives has not been digitized. Crazy. Uh, and I, I think we have a long-term goal trying to go digitize some of that. But it's it's amazing because there's all this stuff that would be so compelling for history that we don't have it in a, and, it, you know, it, it could be essentially, you know, rotting away by however it's being kept. So yeah. we also see the value with what we're doing is things like newspaper archives and how much uh, old newspapers have been now digitized and so we have an easy searchable function that we can go and find out so much about history and it's who knows what it's going to be i mean in 10 years or 20 years but you're right it's easier to research now than it was even just a few years ago yeah uh, and then that makes it easier to see what you've lost when you don't have those records that you can yeah. go digitize them it would be harder to lose a census today that is certainly true yeah it would be much harder and uh, and hopefully that's uh, that's good it means we learned a lesson from this one right is that we try to keep these we take Hope these so, census yeah. for a reason so yeah if if something hit society big enough that you couldn't access uh, the you know the 2010 census uh, or uh, uh, then uh, we will have bigger problems <laughs> that's bad news yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You know, whatever you know, volcanoes, uh, meteorites, zombie apocalypse, aliens, whatever it is. If we're if we're losing that, then we've you know we're you know, the whole world is on the ropes. So I mean, that's that's and that goes back to part of the reason that you remember forgotten histories. That things. I mean, we've had it worse. I mean, we we are no longer living in a world where a single fire is going to re erase our history because we have no other way to keep it now. Yeah. And uh, so this is you know it's it's a good story about how no matter how much you want to complain. I mean, people complain about technology here all the time, and there's yeah. a lot of things to talk about with the digital world and social media and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But one of the things that you get from it is it's much easier to find out who your ancestors were. Yeah, and the, than it the, ever the was. The 1890 fire reminds us of that. It reminds us that yeah, how good we have it today, even though we you know, sometimes you know don't admit it. I think that possibly the biggest tragedy for me in the whole thing is that we had some amount of the census that had survived, maybe as much as 50% or more that had was okay. And then it gets you know put into a warehouse. It gets forgotten about. And it gets put on that list that's sent to Congress for destruction. And the fact that, like, if it is of if it isn't of historical value, you can destroy it. And the the fact that no one in that no one in the list that saw that considered yeah, this I mean, worth it was such a big deal when the fire came, made all the national yeah. news. But then, uh, what was it? That was several years later, wasn't yeah, it? That, uh, uh, then by then, thirties. It's forgotten, and uh, and it's just and you know my guess is that there was money involved that the stuff I mean it might have been moldy it might have needed water remediation or or you know it's you know it's like that thing's been sitting in your closet you haven't looked at it in thirty years you you clearly don't need it right so uh, <laughs> but I mean however it is that it was uh, I mean it really went out with a whimper there and you have to wonder. If that had gotten more publicity, if someone had looked at that and said, hey, wait a second, uh, if that would have been saved and it just it was just kind of tucked in somewhere and never made the newspaper. Yeah. And so it's 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 I'm glad we have the history guy around we'll toot our own horn here because Josh <laughs> wrote the script. Like he said, Josh wrote both of the scripts on the on the podcast today. But uh, I'm glad we have this history around because one of the things a history guy does is it reminds us that this stuff is lost and, and that it's a tragedy when you lose it. And so that, you know, you look out and make sure the bill on the bottom doesn't say, oh, by the way, we're going to. We're just going to chuck, you know, something uh, uh, valuable, millions of records of people who lived in the United States. And we're just going to throw that in the garbage can because it's just too much effort for us to do anything. Which which does seem to I mean, I we just 
just never had the money to, and who knows how much money it would have cost to, I mean, to have someone handwrite what we've got left. And it's hard because we really, they never were able to really take a look at it and even determine how damaged what we had, what we kept was. They yeah. just, it, it was put in storage and then forgotten about. And it is, it is an irony that literally like right as they are laying the cornerstone for the, the national records building, they're, sending this stuff to the garbage and i i don't know i don't know how they destroyed it exactly if they incinerated it or if that was just not really tossed yeah, just in a, a tossed in a out. landfill someplace uh, i have no idea how you'd they find didn't it, even but... recycle <laughs> dang it <laughs> oh, the, the moldy <laughs> i certainly though i mean you wonder we talk about you know if there was 50 percent of it left that was immediately after the fire and if it was essentially yeah. left in a box to dry out in a warehouse for 10 years i mean who has any idea what kind of anybody knows when a book gets wet too how the pages stick together and all that sort of stuff it's hard to say what condition it was in but i mean that's even i mean it's a tragedy when you have the fire and it's even more of a tragedy when you throw away that stuff you know the fire tells you how important (laughs) the stuff was and everybody's like oh no uh and And then then we just uh then then we're like oh but you know do we want to put effort into saving what we had and you know oh no so uh, it is. It's a. It's an interesting. It's a compelling story. And you know that census itself is a compelling story. The yeah. first one that was computed by a computing mechanism that would become eventually international business machines, and uh, and uh, uh, you know the, the whole world kind of changed on the counting method that was used on that. And, yeah. and so I mean, it, it it overall becomes one of those compelling stories of history, and in many ways another one of those stories of of truth stranger than fiction. Yeah. I mean, uh, if you were writing, uh, if you were writing a thriller or a detective novel, novel, the idea that you had this particular fire on this particular census, uh, and then then uh, you know the documents were later just destroyed when people weren't even looking. I mean that's all. I mean that's that's a that's a hard plot line to write, and yeah. it's it's a it's a tragedy, uh, and it's a story that should be told and should be remembered. As, it's a, like any other reason you remember history too, so that so that we don't repeat it. I absolutely agree, and I think we've talked about this was the reason that we built the National Archives and Records Administration, mm-hmm. why we decided to collect this stuff. And I think that that was that was more important than I, I it's hard to overstate it because I mean these were records, so many records that have been used in so many, I mean, for writing all these history books that we read today, uh, for putting together, I mean, some of the stuff we're doing. These were records that were saved because we decided, ah, they shouldn't just be scattered among all of these different government agencies mm-hmm. or wherever. I mean, people didn't even know where they all were. And that, that's it's made a huge so difference. So it created the National Archives and Record Administration. And it's something that we really needed. Though, I mean, another cautionary tale, because we've got other stories about yeah. things, history that was lost, often in places that were specifically built to protect them. Yeah, I think uh, we're, and, I think I mean, we're about to go write it. We're about to talk about another one that has some of that tragedy. Yeah. Yeah, it's another one of those examples. Yeah, uh, we've written a couple, but I mean, there were uh, you know a lot of say silent films were lost in uh, uh, film company archives where they were intended to be protected because <laughs> film breaks down into you know stuff that catches fire easily. Yeah, apparently. Uh, and and but I mean, they were specifically put there to be protected, and now we just put them all together so they could all burn at once. So I mean, it's it's it's. Uh, so creating the National Archive and Record Administration didn't necessarily fix the problem, uh, but no. I mean, at least we were trying at the National Archive building. And again, it comes to a lesson that says that we all have a role in preserving history and recognize our spot in history. And then in the future, people are going to see us as history. And it's and whether they have history depends upon what we've done to preserve what we have today, or we become forgotten history. Yeah. Who wants that? Magellan TV sponsors this podcast, and as we usually do on the podcast, we like to talk about what we've been watching on Magellan TV lately. So let me ask, what have you been watching lately? I I went off the rails. I went off the rails. You know what? I uh, This is not stuff that I actually typically watch, but they sent uh, Captain Kirk into space yesterday. Uh, and so there is actually a series on Magellan called Weird or What with William Shatner. 
uh, and this is this is full of that. I mean, I you know, I'm not I'm not necessarily a conspiracy theory sort of guy, but uh, we're talking about aliens and life after death and and uh, <laughs> cryptozoology. It's a guilty pleasure. It's fun because he's doing it in his Captain Kirk voice, and he's and he's and he's definitely you know stretching to make stuff uh, sound a lot more interesting <laughs> than it really is. But it is a hoot and a half to watch, and it was particularly fun given the week that we had. And uh, you know, everybody knows I'm an old Star Trek fan and stuff like that. So I would say it is very reminiscent of Leonard Nimoy who. It was, it was, you know, his his body and Spock doing in search of. I, I you know, I was going to pick what we were going to talk about this week, and I just I couldn't pass it up. So I, you know, that one of the fun things about Magellan is the, the breadth of the things that it does: science, nature, history, et cetera, et cetera. They have paranormal stuff, not necessarily my favorite stuff, but we talked last time we talked about a Bigfoot show, right? Any of that stuff that fits into the weird paranormal sort of stuff, it will work its way into the series, and it will be narrated by Captain Kirk, and that just made it worthwhile. To speak to the the wide variety of stuff they've got, I was looking. I was watching a history one uh, called The Normans, and it's a it's a series. They've got a couple of episodes. I, I mean, the Normans I think are very interesting, starting with the the Vikings there when they settled there with Rollo, and then this one really starts with the invasion of England. So uh, the Battle of Hastings, ten sixty six, William the Conqueror. But it's it's interesting because of just all of the different things that happened and how important. For the rest of European history, it was that the Normans conquered England. And so this goes over kind of how they conquered England, how they ruled England, uh, kind of what happens to, you know, as the Normans, as England kind of gets its own identity apart from the Normans. And then, of course, that's that's where it starts the problem that the, the English and French crown are connected is largely due to the fact that William the Conqueror was owed allegiance to the king in Paris and also was king of England. And then that causes that literally is so much of medieval history. There is them fighting over her. <laughs> They're an incredible fulcrum. And I mean, there's a lot of history to the Normans, but I mean, they are in terms of, you know, Western civilization, British civilization, which of course impacts an American civilization there. They're yeah. an amazing fulcrum point. It's hard to, enough to teach, say, American history, or, I mean, imagine if you're studying history. I'm, I'm, I'm not from the UK, but I don't know. I don't know how you cover everything in your history class. Crazy, uh, So, I right? mean, how much time do we get to spend on the Normans? And a fascinating era and a fascinating time. And, and so it's it's great to have a series that's going to focus on a people whose culture so impacted uh, Western culture. And, of course, it's just beautifully filmed and ex- excellently narrated. That's the kind of stuff that Magellan does. They make sure that the stuff that they are putting on there, made by documentary filmmakers, that I haven't watched the whole series yet, but it is very it is very interesting and i think that it's a good covering a good covering of the normans and of course if you are a watcher or a listener of the history guy you can visit try.magellantv.com/thehistoryguy there will always be a deal there uh, something about getting a free month or getting some money off of an annual membership stuff like that yeah so there's usually there's usually something that's on there so that if you're not a subscriber you can be watching one for free because we highlighted it on the YouTube channel they also have some my favorite picks are on there if you go to the our landing page oh, cool. so I mean they they really do care about history guy the history guy fans and you'll always have some deal there at, at, at tribagellantv.com slash the history guy Next, the History Guy talks about the National Personnel Records Center fire in 1973. And stay tuned after the episode to hear us talk a little more with the History Guy. At 12.16 a.m. on July 12, 1973, the Olivet, Missouri Fire Department received a call that there was a fire at the National Personnel Records Center in Overland, Missouri. They responded quickly. They had firefighters on scene within four minutes, but by then the top floor of the six-story building was already engulfed in flames. 
Eventually, 42 fire districts would respond to put out the fire, which burned uncontrolled for 22 hours and destroyed between 16 and 18 million U.S. military personnel records. In addition, the firefighters poured millions of gallons on the roof, which did further damage to files on the 5th and 6th floor. According to the current Archivist of the United States, David Ferrero, it was an unparalleled loss to the cultural heritage of our nation. The 1973 fire at the National Personnel Records Center is history that deserves to be remembered. The National Personnel Records Center building opened in 1956 after a series of mergers from other agencies after World War II. The building was designed by the Department of Defense to consolidate records for the Demobilized Records Branch, the Air Force Records Center, and the Naval Records Management Center. The NPRC took custodianship of millions of records from these three centers and for a time was under the Department of Defense as a combined Army-Navy-Air Force facility. In 1960, the facility was transferred to the responsibility of the General Service Administration and the three centers were consolidated into a single records center under the National Archives and Records Service. The building in Overland was designed by the Detroit architectural firm of Helmuth, Yamasaki, and Lineweber. First, they did a study of existing facilities, including the Naval Records Center in Garden City, New York, and a Department of Defense facility in Alexandria, Virginia. The two facilities held different views about how best to protect the records, an argument that reflected a deeper argument among librarians and archivists around the country. The facility in New York strongly recommended the new facility be equipped with sprinkler systems, but the Virginia Center argued that flooding was a greater danger and that sprinkler systems presented more risk than they were worth. Ultimately, the finished building did not include a sprinkler system. Certainly, the Archives and Records Service had its work cut out for it. Its record collection grew quickly after 1956, swelling from 38 million to 52 million records and consolidating both Marine Corps and Coast Guard records. The job of managing the records, included retrieving information for the public, was made more complicated because the building housed tenant offices for the FBI and other agencies, as well as liaison services for the various military branches. The service struggled with the finished design, which had huge storage spaces unbroken by any kind of firewall. The service was also understandably concerned about the lack of a sprinkler or smoke detection system, which it decided as early as 1956 would be required in any new storage buildings. 2,200 employees worked in the building by 1973. In the first hours of July 12, 1973, the spark that turned the issues into a catastrophe was lit, and the top floor of the center caught fire. Less than 20 minutes after the fire had been reported, there were firefighters on the fifth floor of the building reporting heavy smoke and extreme heat on the sixth floor. Eventually, 42 fire districts would assist in fighting the fire, all under the command of Community Fire Protection District Chief John Gerken and his deputy, John Kennedy. Hose companies fought the fire from inside the building on the sixth floor, but the growing fire and heavy smoke prevented them from pinpointing the fire. The situation inside continued to deteriorate, and by 3.15 a.m., the firefighters were recalled from the building. The firefighters quickly faced an even greater problem. By 6 a.m., they had been dumping water onto the fire for nearly six hours without stopping it, and they were running out of water pressure. At 6.12, firefighters asked the water company to increase the pressure if possible. Shortly after, the fire was spreading across the entire length of the building. They called again to request more water pressure shortly before 9 a.m., but two hours later, the entire roof of the building was aflame, and before noon, the west wall was leaning six to eight inches from the vertical. Miraculously, the fire had not yet spread to the building's lower floors, though the firefighters remained concerned that the rest of the building was at risk. Despite issues of water pressure, the companies continued to pour water into the sixth floor from outside. At 2.44 a.m. on July 14th, 
Almost 48 hours since the fighter fighters had first been withdrawn, they were back on the sixth floor fighting the blaze from inside. Shortly before noon later that day, one of the pump trucks failed completely after running continuously for more than 40 hours. Fire crews continued to pour water on the intermittent blaze for two more days to prevent it from rekindling, and only on the morning of the 16th did the crews depart completely. The crisis, as far as the fire department was concerned, was over, but the work of the record service to recover from the disaster was only just begun. Even while the flames were still burning, National Archive and Record Service staff had been making decisions about the recovery. On July 12th, instructions were sent out to halt all mail coming to the NPRC. On a typical day, the center received thousands of requests for information, as well as new records arriving at the center for the first time. It was no small feat for the Postal Service and other agencies to comply fully. The fire destroyed millions of records, though the exact number isn't certain. There were no copies or microfilm of the records, and no index had been made for them. Additionally, millions were on loan to the Veterans Administration, making it difficult to identify a precise number. Estimates suggest as many as 16 to 18 million official military personnel files were lost. Records which included information about a veteran's enlistment, service assignments, training, qualification, awards, disciplinary actions, and more. 80% of the records belonging to discharged members of the Army from 1912 to 1960 were destroyed, along with 75% of the records belonging to the Air Force personnel discharged between 1947 and 1964. Some additional files from other branches were being sorted through for information requests and were also destroyed, though the exact number is unknown. Some records were hurried out of the building on July 12th as well, including computer records which represented an index to much of the collection, operating records of the center itself, and 100,000 reels of microfilm of morning reporting from the Army 1912 to 1959 and the Air Force 1947 to 1959. These records would prove invaluable to the recovery effort. Even in the early days of recovery, the National Archive and Records Service was committed to preserving what records they could that could be used to reconstruct the service record of veterans whose records had been destroyed. On July 23rd, 10 days after the fire, a federal property management bulletin went out to all government agencies to stop any destruction of any records that could be used to reconstruct the data. Once they understood what had been lost, the bulletin was amended to protect data only concerning the lost data. An interagency committee was formed with representatives from the different branches' records groups to determine what kinds of records each had that might be used to reconstruct the damaged or destroyed service records. An article from the American Archivist the year after the fire noted that an impressive spirit of cooperation characterized the sometimes competing goals of saving records from the sixth floor, demolishing and repairing the building, and the stringent safety measures that were put into effect after. The recovery effort would not be easy. Fire had almost totally destroyed the sixth floor, destroying concrete columns, and the roof had mostly collapsed. Shelving units were twisted by the heat, and seemingly intact filing cabinets held only small charred piles of ash. Complicating all of it was water. Millions of gallons had been poured on the building in the initial fire, and firefighters continued to pour water on until the end of the month to prevent sporadic kindling. Pipes on the sixth floor continued to leak until the water could be cut off. It was inches deep in storage areas on every level of the building, damaging records all over. Hot and humid St. Louis weather encouraged the growth of mold on the already vulnerable collection. Their first objective was to remove the records they could, but the damage had ruined the building's electrical system and mobilizing the elevators and escalators. Employees made do by putting dish soap on the rubber handrails of the escalators to turn them into excellent conveyor belts. Eventually, an external elevator, a buck hoist, was installed outside to move the records out more quickly. The first estimates of damage were appalling. Some suggest only 10% of the records on the sixth floor could have survived. 
Ultimately, they find the damage was worst to the Army records between 1912 and 1960 and the Air Force between 1947 and 1964. They hired a company to demolish the sixth floor, which would give them access to some areas that were totally blocked off by damage. They found that in the most heavily damaged areas, a high volume of water had actually protected the records from the fire, especially on lower shells, which, despite the metal twisting in the heat, had been too wet to ignite. So soaked but comparably intact records were found with increasing frequency as the demolition continued. Ultimately, more than six million records were recovered from the building, and many of them needed to be dried. They were first sent to a civilian storage facility in milk cartons to help them air dry. They were sprayed with a solution to prevent mold while they looked for a better solution. They learned that the McDonnell Douglas Aircraft Corporation in St. Louis had vacuum drying facilities originally designed to simulate vacuum conditions for the Apollo mission. After testing it, the government sent the nearly 90,000 cubic feet of records to three chambers at McDonnell Douglas, and later also to a NASA facility in Ohio. 2,000 containers could fit inside the chamber, and nearly 8 pounds of water removed from each container. Almost 8 tons of water each time the chamber was filled. The National Archive and Records Service next put the recovered files into their own index, called the B file. As the records were dried, punch cards were prepared to make the surviving records more easily accessible. The center was given computer access to the indexes of the VA to help reconstruct service records. And as the center returned to normal functions, a new group was created, the Records Input and Reconstruction Branch, dedicated to solving the problems caused by the lost records. After the fire, the building was brought up to the National Archive and Records Service standards of fire safety, including smoke detectors and fire suppression systems. The storage areas were also air-conditioned, as though mold spores were made dormant by the drying process. They remained a risk if they were reintroduced to St. Louis's humidity. Today, records taken from the B-file are still checked for mold, and remediation procedures are in place for those records that show any signs of mold. Investigation into the fire's cause were carried out even while the fire was burning, but despite extensive investigation, they could not determine precisely the fire's cause, point of origin, or time of ignition. Interviews with employees found nothing. The employees who had been on the sixth floor only 20 minutes before the fire had noticed nothing unusual. Newspaper reports suggested the possibility of cigarettes thrown carelessly into trash cans, but no evidence of this was ever found. The FBI could not determine a cause except to rule out arson, while the GSA suspected an electrical short, but said that the damage to the sixth floor was so severe that they didn't think an exact cause could ever be found. The loss of these millions of records represent an incalculable loss to millions of Americans and their loved ones. Although some of the records have been recovered, many of them are simply lost forever. And perhaps most grievously, veterans who lost their medical records have faced all sorts of challenges because those records are missing. Future generations who want to know about their loved ones might not even be able to find out exactly what was lost in the fire, despite all efforts to try to retrieve the information. Even today, 46 years after the fire, the center expends the equivalent of more than 40 full-time personnel each year who work exclusively on responding to requests involving records lost in the fire. The monumental effort and lessons learned in this recovery have and will continue to affect the way that we store, preserve, and duplicate these records that are so vital to the history and legacy of our nation. The individual stories of these service personnel are smaller parts of broader events and the losses at once both very personal and a national tragedy. The National Personnel Records Center was moved from its facility in Overland, Missouri in 2005 to a new facility in Spanish Lakes, Missouri and continues to be an invaluable resource to veterans, genealogists, and historians. One of the frustrating things about this fire and the kind of 
tragedy of errors that came together to exacerbate it is that it wasn't as easy necessarily to see those errors except in retrospect, which does leave us asking the question, though, is why was it allowed to get this bad? Yeah, honestly, that's that's pretty typical. And as people can even see a problem is occurring, but uh, no one wants to pay to fix it until it becomes a disaster, right? And then it's more expensive to clean up the disaster. There's, there's worse examples of this. I mean, we we did one on the uh, the ship, the Richard Montgomery, which sank in the in the estuary out of the Thames and could now blow up and inundate London. Would have been cheaper not to park it in the wrong place. Would have been cheaper to clean it up at the time. And now it's you know sitting there and you know could be a disaster. So I, I think this is typical of how bureaucracies work. And and uh, it's typical because there's lots of demands on resources and uh, and it's but it's interesting because compared to the the, the census fire, uh, this was a building that was built specifically to protect records and they ended up being destroyed in a very similar way and it's kind of interesting how it repeated itself there and it just tells you that no matter what you do, nothing's perfectly safe and it's it's another good reason to protect yeah. to protect and and record your family history because who knows what could be lost you know in a fire or flood or something yeah. like that. Um, one of the, I mean, one of the things that is interesting about this one is that some of the errors were, even if they were recognized as errors, there was some disagreement, even amongst the people who were trying to protect them. So they didn't have uh, a sprinkler system. And there was a specific reason why they didn't have a sprinkler system. And that was because there was a big argument over whether they even should have a sprinkler system. Yeah, it's, well, I mean, it's, it could do more harm than good. But you know, it turns that out was their know, fear. if you don't have a sprinkler system, what they do is the fire department gets on the roof and hacks holes in the roof and just pours water in, and <laughs> might have been better with a sprinkler system. Yeah. And I think there might be systems today that protect the documents that uh, don't use water or whatever. But I mean, I'm I'm sure uh, that they were doing the best they could at the time, and and that anything to do better would have had costs. And and you know, nothing's nothing's perfect. And and you could have built that whole building to protect it from fire, and a tornado could have come and knocked it down. Oh, so. yeah, it's true. They didn't have like the, the fireproof. Uh, the, nowadays, you know, they'll do these things. So if a fire breaks out, everything's kept in separate sections. That, so the fire can't cross between those sections. They didn't have that. That seems to have been kind of before, before they were building the building. They maybe were just getting the idea that that was important. And then, you know, then they build the building. And it's, it's harder to put that in, especially in an already new building. Yeah. And it costs money, and who wants to spend the money if you haven't had a disaster? I mean, if you're just waiting for a disaster to occur, and then the disaster occurs, and like, oh, we should have ought to spent the money. So it's yeah, kind, we see that lot, always. There's a lot in life that kind of works that way, but it is it's it's tragic as as a disaster. It's it's more costly, really, than the in some ways than the than the census fire, and that their people, their veteran benefits, and everything depend upon this, and they've lost those records. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Millions yeah. of records. Yeah. And so now people are, they, you know, they need medical care or they're looking for pension benefits and they cannot document it because of the loss in the fire yeah. and this is slowly reconstructing it. It impacts us in the same way the census fire does in that one of my relatives, George Maness, who was my great uncle who died in the Second World War, uh, we can't get uh, clear records on his service record because they were destroyed in the fire. And you know, it's something we'd like to know. And, and hopefully when we put that all together, we'll have an episode here on the History Guy about it. Yeah. But I mean, this hopefully, is, hopefully, yeah, we'll hopefully. get those records at maybe some point. They, maybe they'll come. This is this is just it's a typical story. I mean, if you, there are uh, hundreds, thousands of yeah. other stories of exactly the same. So everybody knew there was a problem. No one did anything until it became a disaster. And now we're trying to clean up after the disaster. And at least the, you know it didn't fall on people. Which I mean, it could, yeah. I mean, buildings have collapsed or bridges have collapsed on the same the same sort of dynamic, uh, and you know people died. So. It's, it's just how risky life is, I guess. Well, and it's you can't say it was anything in the response that was wrong with this one. That was kind of true of the 1890 census one too. Um, that the the firemen were there quick. Yeah. They were there within minutes yeah. of the as, uh, and they're just 
the fire spread, the problem. I there was so many things because they one of the problems honestly was that we were centralizing the records, and mm-hmm. so we just had everything there, and they were still coming in. We didn't even we didn't even have indexes to a lot of what was in there. We're not even sure what was lost, and yet the thing is we were trying to get there. And the only mm-hmm. way to do that was to bring it all together first. And, you know, what uh, do you do? And the worst possible time to have a fire is when the fire occurred. And a yeah. lot of times it's the work that's doing that can cause it. I mean, that's yeah. uh, because uh, because you're moving stuff or because you're fixing something. So, I mean, it's it's a tragedy. And, and how preventable it was, I mean, it's, it's kind of hard to say. I mean, it's, yeah. it's, again, only something you can say in retrospect. But it, it happened to come, you know, in the in the worst possible way. And and now we're, we're stuck trying to recreate these records so that people, you know, can get due uh, credit for their service in the military. And I don't think they they're even sure exactly what caused it I, I just the damage was so so severe that they're just not sure where where the fire even started mm-hmm. exactly um well and they weren't sure on the 1890 census but that was uh law at least they did kind of come up with an idea that it started in a particular spot in that one but here they just weren't sure um and, and like you said with you know with our your great uncle my great great uncle, I guess that would make him, uh, George Manus. The scale of this disaster is a little difficult to describe. You know, we can talk about 16 million to 18 million records. Uh, but I think that the what we really see is people like us, like and even more people who did serve and are looking for, for their records, when they find, when they go looking for these records and they can't find them, I think that really shows us, I think they understand that's that's oh, what it absolutely. takes to really understand. Yeah. And, I mean, and some of these are people. I mean, these are just records for people who passed on. I mean, some yeah. of these are people who are very much alive, who very much need services, who cannot prove uh, their uh, their service in order to get those services, and so it's it's very much impacting them right now. Uh, and that's, I mean, who, you know, in a hundred years, it'll still be meaningful because of what's lost or because what we're able to find as we go to try to track, you know, uh, yeah. the things for historical purposes. But in, you know, direct purposes right now, this is someone's actual life history that's been lost because of it. And what a, you know, what a tragedy that is. Well, and they know they've served. They were injured in battle, things like that, and they can't prove it. And, and they that's, can't prove it, so they can't get they can't get the medical benefits that they need, or the pension benefits that they need, or they can't document uh, service medals uh, and and all sorts of things. It's just yeah, it's uh, and you know these are uh, who would you want to do right by more than the people who yeah. honorably served your country and uh, you know merely want the record. I mean, you spend in the military, you spend all your time keeping military records, and then when you need them, uh, uh, sorry, we put them all in one building and it burned down. And it's, a, a, you know, it was the worst damage was to the, the U.S. Army personnel between 1912 and 1960. It's just crazy, mm-hmm. the the volume. And, I mean, the fire was only in 1973, so some of those records were very recent, yeah. uh, destroyed. I mean, you know, the people people who fought in Korea, people who fought in World War II even, mm-hmm. were it's only 20 years after the war, or I guess more like 30. But it's so... So many of them still needed those records, and the, yeah. you know they weren't they were never expected to take care of them themselves. They had always gone in with the expectation that those records would be held by the government, and then they're gone. And you know, from the government's perspective, what are they supposed to do? Who knows who's? They literally can't tell who's lying and who's not because they don't have the records. Mm-hmm. But it means you know we've got all these stories of the the big picture things of what happened in those wars, but we've lost a lot of the uh, I mean these records are the kind of records that people use to build forgotten stories like the ones we tell, and they're gone. Yeah, they're gone, and uh, so it's I mean it's certainly difficult for us who are trying to track yeah. forgotten history, 
uh, but it's difficult for families and it's difficult yeah. for veterans veterans and yeah it's uh, i mean i it, you know it hurts you it hurts you in the heart when you're a historian to see here's history that could have been recorded should have been recorded and you know the way we do it i mean every single one of those millions of records is is a story that deserves to be yeah. remembered that could be a story to tell uh, and it's and it's gone and and uh, if you know in the modern era you know you, that's the sort of stuff that you think would be protected so you know these days today those records are are probably digitized they're probably in a cloud somewhere It'd be a lot harder yeah. to lose them, and uh, these days we probably have better ways to protect records. And I'm sure we learned things from the fire, so that it's less <laughs> likely to happen again. But I mean, too often, you know, you're closing the barn door after the horse got out, or I mean, you're you're you know, you're fixing based on something that happened in the past. That you know, you can't fix that, but you can at least help it going forward. Yeah, and that's and that's just the truth. Um, and I think, I mean, I think what's that's that's what's really nice about these stories in particular is we can look at them and we can see, you know that they did leave a mark and that we did learn lessons from them. Because I guess if you're, if you can take any silver lining out of the loss of this, these records is you have to take that. And I think that we, we still have, you know, we've got some people who are not sure why we preserve all of these records. And I think we've kind of gone over what is important about saving these records. And like I said, in some ways we will always remember the big things. You can read your textbooks. We remember the, the large overarching shapes of history but it's it's these stories that really i think make mm-hmm. history especially relatable that's very much the heart of the history guy is that we uh, instead of talking about the large events we try to talk about smaller forgotten events because they're meaningful uh, but i mean there's also a large part of the, the academic discussion of history today is that, as that and we were so busy talking about the large events what about all the contributions of other people you know uh, 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 minority populations or disadvantaged populations or people who weren't recorded at the time uh, you know we need those records too and so i mean the the more that you learn about history the more you you learn that there's more to learn about history and you know these are lost before we get to learn what they are so uh, you know, uh, the stories that might be in there whether those are compelling stories to tell in the history guy or whether those are stories that would be very important to tell in terms of future policy making or, or decision makings you know we don't even know we don't even know what we lost and that's that's a tragedy Thank you for listening to this episode of the History Guy podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Forgotten History, and if you did, you can find more on our website, thehistoryguy.com. We release podcasts every two weeks, so stick around if you want to hear more podcasts of Forgotten History. You can also find us on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, and Patreon. You can even get a personalized message from the History Guy himself on Cameo.